What, did you think you were getting a TED Talk here? Welcome to Common Threads. This is an interview series with the Highland Park High School class of 1995. I've always believed surrounding yourself with a team that's more talented than you are is, is yeah. the key to success. And that is 100% the situation we have here at Cross Plain Capital. It's six o'clock now in the morning as I wait for my train to come. All right, all right. Welcome back. We are over summer. It's over. Uh, I can't, you know, it's really funny. Uh, you know, I loved summer as a kid and ever, never really understood why my parents were so excited about September. Now I completely understand why. Uh, it's a beating. It is. I love my kids. I really do. But it's took up a lot of time. And I learned some lessons. I'm going to pass on some lessons to you. Hopefully we can get a little sponsorship out of these. But uh, the first lesson is the minor league baseball team in Frisco is probably the best entertainment in the DFW area. Not kidding. The Frisco Rough Riders, you know, over at Dr. Be- Dr. Pepper Park, uh, they sell tickets. They, they even have lawn seats. They sell tickets for $10 each for lawn seats. Now, if you have little ones, it's perfect because you're not going to spend a fortune. And they have all kinds of playgrounds. They have a bouncy house. They have a freaking lazy river. I mean, it's unbelievable how cool it is. So next summer, if you have a chance, go to a game. Now, the whole time while I was rolling around to all these different spots this summer, I was wearing Hari Mari flip-flops. They are essential for dad life. So pick up a pair whenever you're on Knox Street next. And for something fun and a game that's, can, you know, there's no timeouts that are TV timeouts. The game is just can, always going on. It's consistent. You never have to really, you know, entertain the kids during breaks. FC Dallas games are awesome. They, you know, the MLS has done a great job. The FC Dallas games, you can buy resale tickets for, you know, on their site they have tickets going for 20 bucks. Um, there's not really a bad seat in the house. And the crowd is lively. I mean, they've got all the, you know, they're trying to be more like the English uh, teams and they're trying to, to have a lively crowd. I went to the FC Austin game and was amazed by the FC Austin crowd. Um, Globe Life Field. Look, the Rangers are awful. We all know that. Uh, but the best air conditioning in Texas is at Globe Life Field. Definitely worth cheap seats. Go there, eighteen bucks. Not a bad, not a bad way to spend your day. Uh, the Rangers are going to turn it around. Did a good job drafting this year, and they the number one ace out of Vanderbilt is going to hopefully start next spring. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And speaking of Vanderbilt, we have a fabulous interview with Mr. Brian Heggie. So buckle up and get ready to listen to the arc of Heggie's career. And really, you know, it's, it's cool. It's, it's how his dad's advice after college set his course to starting cross-playing capital and his fund that he has today, his private equity fund that he has today. It's interesting here is that I hope you're like me and you can pick up on the tone in Brian's voice when he's talking about his father. Um, There's so much respect and admiration in his speech. And I really hope his dad has a chance to listen to the recording because 
it is uh it's special and you know it it kind of makes me jealous i mean um I lost my dad earlier this year, and I, you know, I wish my dad would have heard me, you know, I always spoke about my dad, and, and you know, I always admired my dad, and I always spoke with about him and, you know, such kind words, but never had anything recorded to give to him that he could listen to, so uh, I, you know, this is, a, this is a really uplifting interview, and, and Brian's somebody that I, you know, I just, I need to hear from Haggy uh, every you know, every year or two that he's just such a stable guy. And I just, you know, I love hearing from him. So get ready. Here it comes. It will be Brian Haggy and I for the next 30 minutes. Shelburne, Haggy, what's going How on, you, dude? I'm good. So Very good. good to hear your voice. God dang, man. Dude, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really, I really, really, really appreciate this. Um, happy to do it. I've loved listening to our other really impressive classmates that are doing just amazing things and are happy and are uh, just building great careers and families. And so I'm uh, honored that you uh, wanted to talk to me. Yeah. Well, dude, I'm studying up on you and uh, tell me about Snyder, Texas. So who's from where your mom's from Snyder or your dad's from Snyder? So my dad grew up in a, really a dirt poor town and outside of Lubbock called Tohoka, Texas, that's gone from 10,000 people to like 3,000 over the last 40 years. And my mom grew up in Snyder, Texas. So okay. we have deep, deep roots in West Texas. And that's really influenced, you know, me, especially growing up. So where, so where did your dad go to school? I mean, Tohoka is in the middle of like it's between <laughs> Lubbock and nowhere. <laughs> exactly. It's by O'Donnell. Uh, that's where Tohoka is. So my dad's dad never went to college. And from the second my dad was born was all about education. You know, education is, is your way to a great future. And so every single dime he, he made, never went on vacation with my grandmother and uh, sent my dad to SMU. And that was really transformative. That's where my mom and dad met was at SMU. Uh, really no way. Transformative for, for my parents. Yeah. What year did they graduate? Gosh, that's a great question. I'm going to say 66, 67, somewhere in there. So it's amazing, dude. My parents met at SMU. I was thinking about this because I was talking to Tatum, and her parents met at SMU. And it's really cool to see who stuck around the city of Dallas after they went to SMU. I really wanted my dad to tell me about Dallas in the 60s because – I've become fascinated with not the Kennedy assassination, but Dallas after the Kennedy assassination, just the city in general and how yep. it just, it was called the city of hate. To me, it's one of the best stories because those who went to SMU stuck around and rebuilt the city. Like they didn't know they were rebuilding the city, but they were. So did your dad stick around Dallas? You know, he he left uh went he actually went straight to uh business school in Boston. Okay. And then went Did he go to, to New Harvard? York. He went to Harvard and okay. then went to New York and then Chicago, Houston. I was born in Houston and then just in time to go to UP elementary school, we moved to Dallas. What was he doing after Harvard? He sounds like he was moving around a bit. So he he Kind of what I do now, what he did his entire career, he was one of the kind of original private equity investors 
in the U.S. And no you know, way. So he did what was what they called venture capital in, for first Chicago in Chicago, which is really private equity uh-huh. investing. And then moved to Houston to do basically M&A for a public company and then was recruited by Ed Cox, the Cox School of Business, to come to Dallas to do his private equity investing and then ultimately left that to start his firm, Wingate Partners, in 1987. Interesting, man. I've been fascinated with the rise of private capital. So did you know what your dad was doing as you were growing up? I I had a general sense. We talked about what he was doing around the dinner table, but didn't have an appreciation for really how you can make a difference in small companies through private equity investing if you're operationally intensive and really what he was doing to to improve people's lives in a small way. And so as I got older and into high school, then I really had an appreciation for it. And so when I went to college, I knew that I had to figure out a way, despite being a a average student, to uh, get into the private equity. Dude, you weren't. You weren't an average student. (laughs) Our class was insane. Uh, How competitive was our class i mean it was just it was crazy oh it was incredible oh yeah it was it was totally stupid um but then at vanderbilt you were there with what altano and wittenbreaker right yep yep just three of us made made it to vandy that year okay and i what i mean just you know it's it's not doing well in football now but are you all about vandy baseball (laughs) <laughs> I try to be about Vandy football, but it's been really tough uh, Dude, on my hopes for it's... a new coach. But but you know what? We, we've got two teams. You're probably not aware of the other one, but Vandy baseball, obviously. Uh, but our Basketball, women's right? bowling team, no, women's what? bowling has won, I, I should know this, either one or two national championships over the last decade. So that's where uh, yeah. we, get, we get pretty fired that... up at Vandy. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Hey, listen, if you haven't been to a competitive bowling, you haven't lived. I'm not kidding. Exactly. Okay, so you walked out of Vanderbilt, and then you went into H. Kearney, right? Correct. Were they merged with EDS at that? Was it, Were they going through that merger? Like, they, they went through that merger with EDS, is that right? Yeah, they were owned by EDS at the time that I joined. Okay. Now, did you talk to Coley Clark about that job at all? I you know I didn't um, I probably should have it probably would have helped um, you know grease the skids a bit but yeah no, you know I was I, I was you know Vanderbilt I wanted to either go to Wall Street or be a consultant and okay. Vanderbilt at the time did not have a bunch of the firms I wanted to work for come to campus so I was a professional interviewer I think I had over a hundred interviews my senior year got Stop lots it. of no's. But I remember having I had three or four investment banking offers and this quirky manufacturing consulting offer with AT Carney. I'll never forget. I told my dad that I want to go work in private equity. You know, if you want to do that, you got to go into investment banking. I'm going to take one of these offers, go work on Wall Street for a couple of years. And he goes, no, Brian, if you want to do private equity, you really need to get operational improvement experience, actually pulling exactly. levers in businesses to improve yeah. performance. That was yeah. the Best advice from a business standpoint I've ever received, and it really I spent the first ten years of my career doing that type of work, which has been invaluable in the the role I am today. Speaking of levers, at that time everybody was obsessed with just in time management, right? So yep. just in time inventory management. 
Were you working on that type of supply chain management? I was at Alex Partners. I did a lot of that work, which was my okay. stop. I had a couple after business school, but I had I didn't realize that when you're 22 years old, you don't realize how cool things are. So my first project out of school was on a team of five at General Motors, working with their brand managers and their engineers to reduce the build complexity of all of their cars and trucks, and really to push Jesus. the complexity to the dealership. So you could only you could pick your interior and exterior color. You could right. You had a CD player or a sunroof at the time, but we standardized everything because. Are you trying to make it modular? Like just everything needs it's standardized. What you're saying? Like, so we make it standard, and if you wanted these options that no one bought, the dealership would install it. So basically, we took the Japanese model and implemented it at, at GM. And as a result, you could have fat, lower inventory, faster inventory turns, quality was better, just everything improved from that point. So such a cool project. But at the time, I, I had no idea how cool it really was. And you were how, what, yeah. 23, 22? 22. 22 years oh old. You know, and oh I know nothing. I can like, you know, analyze the database and like, but that was yeah. about it. And then they you'd throw me in a room with brand managers and engineers and I have to fake it. You learn as a consultant, it's just how to kind of just, you got to play the part until you actually are the part. And I felt right. like fake I was playing the part it. for like 10 years. Exactly. So from there, then you went ICG, you were part of that portfolio company. Um, yep. Now, I got to ask you, was that just wheels off management over at ICG? It was the internet. It's not the calling card of the internet.com bus, but dude, they're up there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It it was. So I, I didn't have a ton of exposure to the actual investment team at ICG in Philly. Right. Um, but, you know, they, they funded us. We were a startup. We were building it as we were flying. It was crazy. And I think the the two years I spent in the startup world was probably one of the best lessons I've ever learned in just how not to run a business. Right. We just We made lots of mistakes. We did lots of things right as well. And it ended up being a good investment. They sold our business to Accenture ultimately. But after two years in the startup world, I realized I'm not a startup guy. I need to go to business school. And that's when I shifted and went to Texas for my MBA. Okay, and that's where you got started getting real serious about private equity. That, that's right. Vanderbilt Liberal Arts School teaches you how to do math and write yeah. papers. Yeah. And so I needed that hardcore accounting finance backbone to to make the shift. And so that that's why I needed to get my MBA. You were talking about pulling the levers on a business. And you don't know those levers until somebody points something out to you. Because usually with accounting for me is plug and chuck. It's not absolutely. Like, I I usually need a teacher to say, okay, do you do this? Would you go back to your dad and throw case studies around at all, or were you were you picking his brain at all? Not really in business school, but when I ultimately got into the private equity world, absolutely all the time. In fact, when when I started Crossplane, I asked him to be a senior advisor to our fund just because he's got more experience in his pinky than our whole team combined. And so he, he has been, for me, the best business mentor sounding board I've ever had in my career, more than anyone else I've ever worked with. 
Well, if the guy's part of the foundation of the industry, I think, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's, and it's right there. Like, it's not a yeah. hard call for you. That's awesome. You take advantage of it. Having that in your backyard is just, it's so cool. I, I love, love looking at Dan Slavin and how he works with his dad. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Rick just does such an amazing job with Dan and teaching Dan about deals that are coming and what to do in certain deals. It's awesome to watch. It really is. Now, it's not always great, but it really is something that when you don't have it and you're on the outside looking in, you say, wow, that's cool. Like, you're smart enough to actually take advantage of the knowledge base that your dad built. You combine that, like in, in Dan's situation, with Dan's hustle. I mean, that's oh, just, dude, that's what we look for. Stop. I'll take the hustle over any other attribute in a person. And Dan has that probably more than anybody, which which is cool to see. I've never seen anybody work a country club like Slavin. Like, he just, <laughs> he owns the DCC. It's so fun to watch. I'm so proud. Well, when of him. I, I really am. When I see him at breakfast, he's already worked out for an hour and a half. He's already yeah. been to the office for an hour, and then he's at breakfast. And I'm just starting my day. So it's it's the animal. He's really good with follow up. Like he's the one guy I know that always follows up on anything he's at. It's it's pretty incredible to watch. Now you so Hicks Muse Tate and first private equity award. So you won that, didn't you? Yeah, I I can't remember the circumstances, but yeah, that was some award I got in, in business school. I'm sure it, it wasn't okay. as impressive as it might sound. Well, I'm kind of curious because Hicks Muse Tate and First, they were early days of the the SPAC, the Special Purpose Acquisition oh, yeah. uh, Company. So, what is the difference between private equity? And a SPAC. You know, I, I don't profess to be a SPAC expert, but uh -huh. I think the incentives are completely misaligned in a SPAC. The incentives okay. for a SPAC investor is to get a deal done, period. Okay. And to That's overpay it. for a deal because the, the, the economics are so slanted in the favor of the general partnership of the SPAC that that's why you're seeing all these SPACs just go down in flames. Not all of them are that way, but the SPAC craze has definitely slowed down. Whereas in, in the, the private equity world, every deal matters. Yeah. Every deal has to be a good deal. You so, guys are very meticulous about the companies you choose. Ab absolutely. We look at, we'll look at 1,200 transactions this year. We will close two to three platforms and maybe five to 10 add-on acquisitions. Okay, so, what's a platform? A, I don't know what that is. So a platform is like a standalone business. And okay. then we will, over the course of our ownership period, we will most likely do some add-on acquisitions to maybe enter different geographies, give us different capabilities, different scale, you name it, vertically integrate. So that's typically one of the levers we pull on an acquisition. So we want to have maybe seven total platform companies in a fund and then we'll okay. have add-on acquisitions on top of that. I know these are stupid questions. Do those companies interact with each other and just leverage off of each other, or what happens? So we try to have some knowledge sharing. We have okay. an annual meeting. Of course, annual meeting this year was kind of strange because it was virtual, and, it, and who knows what will happen this, this year. But there is knowledge sharing, best practices that we share, but typically they're yes. very different businesses. So it's not like we're sharing okay. supply contracts or anything like that. 
okay, you went out, you just closed $250 million in, they called it hard cap. What is, by the way, what does that mean? Yeah, a hard cap is a number where you have an agreement with your investors that you will not raise a dollar over that amount. Because oh. uh, in this business, a lot of firms will just raise as much money as possible because it creates more fee income, which is probably good for the general partnership, but not good for the investors. And so right. we told our investors, we're not going to raise a dollar more than X because we want to stay small because that's where we think you can get outsized returns. And by the way, we put a hard cap on our second fund, which we haven't even talked about raising yet, just to show our investors we are true to the lower middle market because this is where you can get you know, outsized returns. And so yeah. that, I think that was an important part of our fundraising strategy. What we were talking about was SPACs. Is that SPACs are going to be chasing companies that are valued yep. over 100 million, and it feels like you're looking for something like 25 to 50 million in that area. Yeah, or, yeah, uh, we're, we're we're we've got a, a wide range, and it depends on the industry. But yeah, we're somewhere between kind of 40 and 100 million with okay. enterprise value okay. for a company. So you, but you're not are you're not seeing competition with those SPACs coming in trying to bid stuff up. No, we're not. We're not. We're we focus on what I call the dusty corner of the economy. We're we are old school industrial investors, companies that my kids think are super boring that I think are really cool. Dude. Um, so and in, this gets yeah this gets to your experience at Alex Partners, because yes. this is where you learn that the boring is actually cool. Yes, Alex Partners is all about, you know, it's the, the premier restructuring firm, operational improvement firm, and that's where I learned cash is king, how to manage networking capital effectively, how to yeah. just-in-time supply chain, build global supply chains, have the best cost structure. And so we take that Fortune 100 skill set and apply it to lower middle market companies, which they just don't have access to that kind of experience they can't go hire an Alex Partners or another consulting firm given their size. And so that's what right. we do for our portfolio companies. So do you come in? Now, let me ask you this. Like, since you had so much experience with actually being in the weeds, helping with the operational improvement, Alex Partners, you probably did the same thing in profit, right? At your, yes. At the other private. So are you learning right now how to – delegate responsibility because you can't necessarily be in the weeds as much anymore, right? I, I can't. And that's been definitely learning is the right way. I've always believed surrounding yourself with a team that's more talented than you are is, is yeah. the key to success. And that is 100% the situation we have here at Crossplane Capital. And so getting into the weeds is I'm not in it as much as I used to, but we have yeah. a team of people that are infinitely better than I am or ever was. Um, well, that but that's, that that's got to be hard for you because you probably weren't doing the fundraising before, were you? No, that was, that was a new learning curve to say the least. You, you're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta step back. I gotta let these guys take it. Cause you're so ingrained in the operational role that getting into the management role is something that you're not used to. And it's hard. I mean, that's yeah. got in for for you, that's got to be insanely hard because it's at such a huge level now, right? When you've got people you trust, now I can focus oh, yeah. my time on, on, on other areas that create hopefully even more value. 
um, for our investors. But uh, no, you're right. It's it is absolutely a learning curve to take a step back and let other people do the do, well, the, do the work. It, do you still you got to still wake up with like knots in your stomach. It's got to be something where where you have to be like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm doing this on my own. What the hell? What what am I what, what am I doing? What am I doing? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, I, especially when a global pandemic hits, you're trying to raise capital and all that kind of stuff. It, a yeah. few sleepless nights is an understatement. I mean, it was just so you know. I I've, I've been on this you know this venture with these guys in London, and it's been unbelievably difficult to connect with people because you're doing it over a zoom call. I'm sure you, you, some of your investors are virtual. You haven't met them in person yet. You know, the answer is yes. Luckily we planted so many seeds in 2019 that we've met with most of our second largest investor. I've never met in person, which is amazing. That's the funny thing about Katana is that I haven't met any of these guys. I don't know how tall <laughs> they are because I can see one guy being really tall, but what if he's not? What if it just doesn't make meet my expectations, right? It's just well, it's, that could have played a, that could have played to my favor, you know? Because yeah, totally all these virtual meetings, they they have no idea that I'm five <laughs> seven or whatever. <laughs> Dude, it, I mean, people just don't, like they. They don't know how, like, when you walk into a room, you're just going to be shocked when you start seeing these people. You're like, yeah. oh, oh, hey, you know, I've only had a, uh, like, a relationship with you over Zoom. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> our, our business is 100% relation-based, like most uh-huh. businesses. And you cannot, if if we're going to buy a company, we have to, we want to be the, the preferred buyer. They're picking us yeah. because of who we are, the values we bring, the skill sets we have. Otherwise, we're a pure commodity. And so I realized last, gosh, August, September, we, we took the pandemic very seriously and we had to to keep our, all of our employees safe. Yeah. But I yeah, realized yeah, yeah, yeah. for us to be successful in getting deals done, I had to be in our team in front of these business owners that were selling their companies. And we had to create relationships. And so starting last August, September, we started traveling. And we might be in a courtyard Marriott conference room yeah. 45 feet away from each other with our masks off, but we're there yeah. creating a relationship. And that was so important for us to just continue to, to build momentum in the firm we're building. Otherwise, we're just another investor that looks like everybody else. Exactly. And and how do you invest in those companies? Do you actually buy the company outright or do you supply them with capital? So we, we do control equity. So it doesn't have to okay. be 100%, but it ha- has to be, you know, greater than 50% and, and have control of the board. So we have to be able to make operational and personnel decisions if, if we have to. If it's a family-owned business, we require rollover equity. If it's a family that just wants to sell their business and walk away, then then we walk away. But if it's a family that really wants a true operational and financial partner, then we're the right group. I'll put us up against, you know, almost any other group um, in those situations, but we do require them to roll over some meaningful equity alongside us. What are the dynamics of the family like? Like each family has to have different dynamics, but that is expertise on its own. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, I mean, typically there's, it's multi-generational, 
You've got uh-huh. grandparents that just want to exit, which is okay. They're 80 years old and aren't involved. And then they may have sons and daughters that are in the business. And where it gets really tricky is when you're buying a business, you're in sales mode because you're trying to convince them right. to sell you their business. Um, right. And there may be family members in the business that are really important to its success. And there may be others that aren't. And so you just got to handle that uh, very delicately. But we, we're pretty upfront with the family so that we're not surprising them post-close on our plans for their family members. What about the legal, like there's got to, is there a lot with the states or tie-ins with the states within the family? I would think that there's a lot of legal battles there. Yeah. I mean, we clean up the ownership structure in a pretty meaningful way through the transaction. So we don't, we don't really get, they have to deal with that complexity, but Post-close, we'll have, you know, one or two family members that are key to driving the performance of the business rolling over, and then we'll cash everybody else out. Oh, that's genius. Because they're not, they're probably not involved in the business anyway, right? Right. You know, oftentimes you see in these family businesses, there's people that have their hands out for money. They want distributions. And as a result, the business can't invest in growth like it otherwise should be doing. And so oftentimes yeah. it's the family member that is driving the business that sees all of the the family dynamics that aren't good for the business that actually pushes for the sale to find the right partner. That's the smartest thing because if you're paying dividends on a company that doesn't need to be paying dividends, you know, this this yep. isn't the right approach. It's these distributions don't make sense. Why don't you take the cash and reinvest in XYZ machinery or XYZ plant or this new technology. How did you think families? Like, why were you thinking families? There's really two different transaction dynamics that we target. And if it doesn't fall into these two dynamics, we're not interested. So it's that family owned business that is truly seeking a partner or yeah. it's a complex transaction. So a corporate carve out or restructuring. Um, because in both of those situations, purchase price is important but it's not always the top of the list. So in the family-owned business situation, there's going to be meaningful rollover equity alongside us. And so they're picking the right partner who's going to make that second exit hopefully even better than the first exit. In the restructuring world, having a reputation for moving faster than other groups and even more importantly, doing what you say you're going to do. In the restructuring world, there's so many sharp elbows, people that will retrade you at the goal line, do anything for that extra dollar, and we won't do that. And as a result, we've built a reputation in the restructuring world for getting deals done as the third or fourth highest bidder because people know that we will get to the goal line and close on the number that we've told them, unless something comes up in due diligence that is, you know, um, not what they told us. And so, have you we, experienced that doing the due diligence and just see this? time bomb in there and be like, no. Oh, yeah. I'm out. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Some, I mean, we always say some of the best deals we've done are the ones we didn't do. And it happens yeah. more often than you'd like to, but you have to have the, you know, the guts to say, you know, we spent a lot of money doing due diligence, but it's better to walk away than to make the investment. I know you see a ton of deals, but how many do you actually go after? Um. We've closed 14 acquisitions since we started Crossplane. There are only two that we have seriously gone after and not closed. 
So we, we've okay, had so a pretty high success rate. 14 out of 16. That's damn high. I, yeah. Now, we've, we've gone after other deals and, and not spent money um, and haven't gone anywhere. But in terms of chasing and spending money, there's only two that we, we have lost. Okay. Now, how many people? How many deals do you see daily, like weekly? How many people throw stuff at you? So 20 to 25 a week. And who's pitching them? Like, are there guys like deal brokers? So across the board, um, okay. we, we have a, 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 a person on our team and her job all day, every day is to talk to the kind of off the beaten path intermediary, whether it's a lawyer, accountant, attorney, yep. business broker, yep. small investment banker. And so she really is just a great job of driving our deal flow. We're all involved in it, but that is her sole job. Um, and so that's Dude, those, really like, what... those small town accountants know some of the best deals in the world. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, yeah. It really is funny to see how these accountants, or, you know, what's even weirder are small banks, like tiny little banks and loan officers at banks. Cause the bank yep. usually passes on, you know, some kind of a, a deal and that, they're like, okay, well, this is a bit too risky for us. Will you guys, will you guys go after something like that? Uh, so, I guess the, your your first comment was spot on. The trusted advisor to the family is their tax. Guy. Yeah. Because yeah. he's done all the estate planning, the tax planning, and so we have a lot of success, you know, kind of marketing in that world. Um, and then it's also, you're right, the the commercial lender. It's the lender to the company who has financed the business for, you name it, 10 to 30 years, is also the trusted advisor. And so if you get to build good relationships with those two pockets, they can bring you some pretty interesting deal flow. I guess that's kind of the fun part of your business is uncovering the, the uncut diamond, right? Finding that uncut diamond and being like, uh, hey, guys, this is actually worth a ton of money and pointing that out to people. You're absolutely right. The, the coolest thing about our job is learning businesses you would never think of in a million years comes across your desk and it's like those people make money doing that. Wow, that's incredible. Um you it's know, like almond we've got, farmers. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Just opening up my refrigerator and there's quite a bit of almond milk, so they're doing great uh right now. <laughs> well, it's nuts, dude. It's I great country. love this. Well, I mean, it is. It really is. And I love the fact that you can find that in a bit like it's almost like all of your experience that you've had throughout your career comes to this point of just saying, hey, that's actually going to make money. And you're smart enough to put people smarter than you around you and say, you know, that that's a good idea or that's not a good idea. And then do you send that idea to the board? Yeah, so so we handle everything internally as a team, so we don't have like an external board. But okay. we spend yeah. – this is an apprenticeship industry. It takes years of experience understanding the strategic strength of a business and how to evaluate the strategic strength of a business. That's where we spend all of our time. It's not looking at the financials and building a financial model. It's why does this business have a reason to exist if the – founder or CEO got hit by a bus, what would happen? What would happen to the customer relationships, the supplier relationships? Yeah. Is the business a s- substitute to 
a market or is it being substituted out? You know, that's where we spend all of our time. And if we can get past that, then can we, you know, double or triple the profitability of the business through operational improvement doing things we've done in the past? And if we can check that box, then we're all in and we, we go after the deal. Dude, I love it. I love hearing about this, man. I really well, do. I, I appreciate I'm, I'm glad someone's interested in it. And uh, this what has do you been mean? really Does fun. Libby, Libby, Libby doesn't like this at all? <laughs> she, 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 she does, but doesn't always want to hear about it at the dinner table, and I get it. So Yeah? Um, but, uh, well, are you this, traveling this a lot? Awesome. Let me ask yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every week. Okay. But what are you flying? Are you, are you a Southwest guy? Or are you what, what are you doing? I'm an American guy. I will actually drive to DFW even though I live by Love Field. Um, just on the chance that I might get upgraded, even though I usually don't, just that hope makes DFW. You don't have to talk about it. Personal life, kids, how many? Or if you don't want to bring them up, you don't have to. Kids are great. Uh Junior and sophomore at Highland Park, a seventh grader. Damn. They're fantastic. And I served at the spaghetti supper last Friday. Supper the bells? My, my daughter's a bell. And so that uh, was super strange. I felt so old. But it was a ton of fun. Dude, you know, it's funny. Okay, so I've been thinking we're going to have our reunion. I don't know when we're going to be able to have it. But I'm thinking – Will the be- do the bells do events? Like, will the bells dance at events? Can you hire the bells? I have, I have no idea. I I don't know. They'll go to like little kids' birthday parties. I know that. So I mean, maybe. listen, dude. I would love to have the bells do a routine, and then have the bells from our class come out and do a routine, <laughs> like a dance off. How great would it. that be? Okay, then, so I, then, I'll be in charge of getting the current bells if you'll be in charge of rounding up oh, the bells from our class. I'm not kidding you. Elizabeth Wheeler would die at the opportunity. <laughs> she, would, she would jump at that opportunity. Think about that. Wheeler, Kelly Wilson, you get Jodis in there. You get, you know, all, like, all the girls that were bells. They want a dance-off so bad. When this reunion comes up, call me because I get like 20 ideas a day. Oh, my God. If we had the Highland Park band come walk through playing at like an after party, be like the Wolf of Wall Street. Be amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm getting right, a call. All right. Thanks, I will, here's, here's what's going to happen. That was pretty good, wasn't it? If you want to help me cover the cost for the show, I'd really appreciate it. If you can go to my website, catfix.biz, that's C-A-T-F-I-X dot B-I-Z, 
and donate just a few bucks. I just need to, this is taking a lot of time to produce and the equipment's not that cheap. Hopefully I have this all set up where you can just put in a credit card or possibly Bitcoin if you really want to. Uh, but it's going to be through Stripe and it's just, it's on the catfix.biz. Click on common threads, then you'll see the donate button. Thanks guys.